Mark 12:13 says, Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's? And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So they're taking some time here to test Jesus. They just question him about his authority after clearing out the temple. And then he told them this parable about the vineyard. And they realized he was talking about them. They're wanting to do away with him. But first they have to try to trip him up before they can get an advantage over him. So the religious and political leaders come together to oppose Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they were bitter foes. But they were brought together by a common hatred of the Savior. There's nothing that unites enemies like a common foe. You know, that saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And you see this in um, much of the radical Islam that takes place. You know, The Sunnis and the Shias will join together to fight uh, the Israel and the U.S., but when they're not fighting them, then they'll seek to obliterate each other. It's kind of like Pharisees and Herodians. They weren't, weren't really buddies. But they seek to find a way to carry out their plan to eliminate him as a threat, and he is a threat. He has told them of God's plan to take away the vineyard from them and give it to others who would bear good fruit. And if he's allowed to continue, he will threaten their cushy situation. There is no greater potential threat to any person than the Lord Christ Jesus. He is holy and righteous and will judge the world on this basis. And those who are his enemies, he's the greatest threat to them. We have seen that, in, that his authority is the highest authority. In Matthew 28, he tells the Apostles, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he tells them, he gives them that commission that he wants them to do. This commission is based on the highest authority that exists. All authority has been given to Jesus. Jesus holds the fate of all the world in his hands. You know, that song, he holds the whole world in his hands. It's true. He holds the fate of the whole world and of every individual in his hands. Over in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is speaking to the uh, folks on Mars Hill, the Athenians, he says in verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And, uh, of course, they didn't accept that word. But Jesus is appointed by the Father as the judge of the world. Now, today is not the day of judgment, however. God is delaying his judgment of this sinful world 
and instead is offering forgiveness and grace to those who repent of their wicked deeds and turn from their sin to him. This is because he loves his enemies and desires for all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, as he tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. So he's the greatest threat that exists or ever will exist to his enemies. He is a threat to his enemies that can never be mitigated or eliminated. He can never be overcome. The good news is that none of his enemies need experience his wrath toward their sin, their trespass, their wickedness, their rebellion against his holy law. He will ever remain as he is, but his enemies need not continue as enemies. He allows defectors to come freely to his side of the battle, to become his servants and soldiers, to cease being his enemies and to become his friends. And this door is wide open for now. The day is going to come when that door is going to be closed. We were told that while we were still his enemies, while we were sinners, he died for us. Romans chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 2 then, we're, we're warned in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. It's a dangerous place to be without Jesus Christ. And he is a great threat. The sad thing is many people today do not even realize that they're enemies of God. They are not aware that they are sinners in need of a Savior. This is a truth that has been suppressed, even in many religious Christian organizations or circles. So they come to him to catch him in his words and they begin with great flattery. Or they say to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and you care about no one. That is, you don't regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. It would be impossible for the average person not to see through this flattery and Jesus is not the average person. So... He certainly sees through it. Uh, He knows what they're trying to do to butter him up, to allay his suspicions, to get him to drop his guard as he answers their question because they think they've got him here. You know, there's only two possibilities that are both bad. The question is a loaded one. If he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, he's at odds with Rome and will be reported immediately to the Roman authorities. Problem solved. But Jesus didn't come to be a social revolutionary. He didn't come to overthrow the Roman government. There's going to come a day when he does overthrow all the governments, set up his own rules, not for the purpose of overthrowing anything, it's the purpose of putting his own kingdom in place. But he didn't come to overthrow Rome. He, didn't, he, he did not come at this time to right all the wrongs in the world. That day's coming. He came at this time to redeem men and women and gather them to himself. He came to be the Savior of the world, the one foretold from the beginning. Sometimes you see Jesus depicted as a Che Guevara type guy, someone in the vein of a communist activist. Che, who many idolized, was actually a murderous fiend. He spoke once about how he enjoyed killing people. Uh, When he had killed somebody, he said, boy, I found out I really like that. I'm paraphrasing. He did speak of Christ at least twice. Here's what he said about him. I am not Christ or a philanthropist old lady. 
I am all the contrary of a Christ. I fight for the things I believe in with all the weapons at my disposal and try to leave the other man dead so that I don't get nailed to a cross or any other place. And then he also said, in fact, if Christ himself stood in my way, I, like Nietzsche, would not hesitate to squash him like a worm. This was his viewpoint. And and you'll find many Christian revolutionaries wearing, you know, the t-shirts, many celebrating this man, quoting his hateful words toward anyone who would not join him in violent revolution. This was not the way of Jesus. Che has gone to his reward, and a tragic fate awaits any who follow his way. Making heroes of mass murderers will not bring about any justice in the world. We have people being nominated for high positions in our government who think Mao was a great guy, or that Stalin was right on. Blind and fools. Not that Jesus was not a revolutionary. The revolution Jesus came to start and did start is the revolution within the hearts of men and women who turn from their sin and begin to follow and serve the righteous God. They're like Dennis Agajanian, who has called himself a rebel to the wrong. It's an individual, one-at-a-time change. And first and foremost, it's to be a rebel to the wrong within oneself. And the only way that can be dealt with is through surrendering to Jesus Christ as Lord and seeking to follow him as he leads. If you want to change society or change the world, then seek to win souls to Christ. The only way the world only changes and evil is only diminished when men's hearts change toward God and when men repent of their sin. Until the hearts of men change, nothing will change for the better. May the Lord send his spirit in convicting power through whomever he might use, wherever he might choose. So if Jesus says, don't pay, he's in trouble with Caesar. Not that he would have any trouble with Caesar. But on the contrary, if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, then his popularity among the people will be vastly less. Problem, maybe not solved, but mitigated. Public opinion kept them from laying hold of Jesus says David Guzik, so they, ne- so they tried to turn the tide of public opinion against him. Using a clever question, they wanted to make Jesus seem to agree with the Roman government against the Jews. This was always the two-pronged strategy of the religious leaders of Israel. Either destroy Jesus, kill him, or get rid of him completely, or turn the people against him. Reduce his influence and thus his threat to their power and position. Now, the people of Israel hated the Romans and Roman rule. They hated those who collected taxes for Rome. (coughs) Most especially their fellow Israelites who they considered traitors for working for the Roman oppressor, uh, Matthew, the apostle, the ex-tax collector, Zacchaeus. These, these guys were particularly hated. The Israelites were in fact looking for a Messiah who would cast off the yoke of Rome and establish Israel as first among the nations, as is prophesied in the scriptures. Jesus often upset people's thinking in regard to the Romans, in regard to the Gentiles, and in regard to the Samaritans. 
An example in relation to Rome is found in the Roman official's ability to compel someone else to do his bidding or carry his message or his baggage. Uh, apparently this originally started back in uh, the Medan, Med Empire, Media, doesn't mean that. Um, apparently it started there with their postal service, you know, it was before the Pony Express. And so if they needed to get a message somewhere and there was the, the post office is here and you happen to be walking by a private citizen, they could grab you and say, this needs to go, you know, maybe it's the opposite direction you were coming from. This needs to go back to this city and you, you're responsible to take there. And you'd have to turn around, take it there, you know, interrupt whatever you were doing. And so it started there, but the Romans uh, carried it out. And, and in Jesus' day, Roman soldiers occupied the Holy Land in order to squelch any rebellious efforts by the local Jewish citizens. And so these Roman soldiers were afforded certain privileges. One such privilege was the right to stop an able-bodied, non-Roman male citizen and order this individual to carry the soldier's heavy equipment for a maximum distance of 1,000 paces, or a mile passus, which is the Latin phrase for where we get the word mile. You had to go with him one mile. After traveling that mile with a Roman soldier, the man could set the equipment down as his obligation was fulfilled. But Jesus tells the people in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.41, he says, Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. That probably wasn't a popular saying. <laughs> Again, Guzik says, Jesus here says, Go beyond the one mile required by law and give another mile out of a free choice of love. This is how we transform an attempt to manipulate us into a free act of love. So we have this expression, going the extra mile, going beyond what's required of you and voluntarily giving more of yourself. So the question to Jesus, shall we pay or shall we not pay? Uh, of course, they were required to pay. Not paying was not an option if you wanted to remain free or alive. These taxes were imposed by, Roman, by the Romans on Judea. The first was the ground tax, which was 10% of all grain and 20% of all wine and fruit. The second was the income tax, which amounted to 1% of a man's income. The third was the poll tax, paid by men aged 12 to 65 and women 14 to 65. And this was one denarius a year, about a day's wage for a laborer. So the... Senior citizens, those over 65, which were a lot less than they are now, they were free. They didn't have, you know, I'm trying to get that instituted here. No taxes for anybody, you know, not working. Um, on, somebody said on average the common Jewish person paid about 49% of their, their wealth, I guess, because it's more than just income in the taxes. Most people grudgingly paid it, but everybody hated it. It wasn't just the money, but also the principle of paying the Roman oppressor. You know, Ben Franklin, in 1789, he wrote a letter to the French scientist Jean-Baptiste Leroy. The original quote he wrote in French, and, and Ben was 83 years old when he uh, wrote this, and you've probably heard at least part of it. He said to uh, Jean-Baptiste, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. 
But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. We also must pay taxes if we want to remain free. Try not paying your taxes to Washington. That's our Caesar. I don't recommend it. The results will not be pleasant for you. We may object to many things for which our tax dollars are used. For me, abortion is a major one. But you may have a list. I have a list of certain things I don't like paying for. Nonetheless, you must pay. I hate paying taxes. But I don't hate all taxes. I appreciate those that we pay to protect and serve by upholding just laws. I appreciate the military as a strong defense of our nation. And common roads must be maintained. But I don't appreciate the taxes that are just tacked on to support the latest social experiment. And we have more and more and more of those going on all the time. And many times ungodly things. Still, a person can spend their entire life fighting taxes and that can be as effective as fighting death. We don't want to expend all our physical and mental injury or energy. It is an injury. We don't want to expend all our physical and mental energy fighting something that is certain and leave the weightier matters undone. That's not the focus of our business. We're to be about the business of our Father in Heaven. There is one who has fought and conquered death. So following him is the way to share in his victory. Yet we are in a little different situation than the Israelites under Rome. We have a voice in our government. We can try to vote out those who support policies with which we disagree and seek to vote in or run for office to support policies with which we agree. The Jewish people didn't have this option. But our ability to withhold taxes from the government is not realistic. You may have seen in the news things in the past where people tried to withhold partially of their income because they didn't want it going for this or that or the other thing. And, you know, um, government has a lot of power to squish any kind of thing like that. So I don't recommend it. You fight the government on taxes. You can disagree and talk to them. But. So, they think they have him trapped. We can almost see the smug, self-satisfied smiles of the Pharisees and the Herodians as they skillfully threw this question on Jesus. They thought he was in a trap he could not get out of, but you can't put Jesus in a trap. They thought there were only two answers, and either way, he's stuck. But Jesus is not fooled. He knows their hypocrisy. Someone has said, sometimes our enemies flatter us because they want to hurt us. And sometimes our friends flatter us because they want to be kind and helpful. Either way, it's a mistake to put too much stock in what others say about us, either good or bad. Uh, there's a book that Charles Spurgeon wrote, which is um, Lectures to His Students. And there's one chapter which is called The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. And Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon counseled these men. He says it's always, and it's a, there's a lot in this chapter, but he said it's always best not to know nor wish to know what is being said about you either by friends or foes. Those who praise us are probably as much mistaken as those who abuse us. The commentator Trapp said, Here is a fair glove drawn upon a foul hand. 
There are those who will smile in your face and it is and at the same time cut your throat. <laughs> so Jesus says, uh, he asked for a coin, presumably because, you know, he didn't have one. <laughs> and so they bring him the coin. You know, did they have to go get one? Did they, somebody pull one out of their pocket? And so he asked them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius. And then, of course, he answers their question with a question. Whose inscription, whose image and inscription is this? And the coin had an image of Caesar on it and had his name, you know, Pontifus Maximus, which means the highest ruler around, which the Jewish people also would have disagreed with, you know, except when they were shouting to get rid of Jesus. We have no king but Caesar, you know. So whose image is this? And I wonder, you know, when they asked, when he asked them that, if they all looked around at each other before they answered. And I'm like, you, you got any idea why he's asking this? <laughs> and so Jesus' answer, render the, to the things, render the things of Caesar to Caesar and the things of God to God. His answer amazes them. In essence, he says, yes, pay, but in such a way that they have to think before they can react. They can't react violently against him while they're marveling at his answer. At one time, the Pharisees sent officers to go and arrest Jesus in John chapter 7. And they were there for a while, and then they came back. And uh, verse 45 says, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. So they're they're there listening and they can't do anything. They can't do anything. And so his answer with his answer he moves the topic from what they ask about taxes to what he wants to talk about rendering to God. He sets their priorities straight and he challenges them. You're concerned about taxes? But how concerned are you about what God deserves or requires from you? Which is your greater concern? Where is your focus? Are you more concerned about a temporary situation than eternal issues? Even if we can evade paying taxes to man, we can never evade rendering to God what is due to him. So it's best to do that. William MacDonald said the coin had Caesar's image on it and therefore belong to Caesar. Man has God's image on him. God created man in his own image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and therefore belongs to God. The coin belonged to Caesar because his image was stamped on it. We should give ourselves to God because his image is stamped on us. Uh, Tertullian, in, in commenting on this, said that we are... God's currency, and he desires to expend us upon this sinful world. I thought those were good points to make. As believers, we have these two responsibilities, one to the government and one to God. We have a dual citizenship. We are citizens of the country in which we live, and we are citizens of heaven. We're told in Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells him in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I've told you often 
Now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he's able even to subdue all things to himself. This citizenship, why, why should we follow Paul's example? We're citizens of heaven, and we're waiting for the king to come. Adam Clark says, the, this answer of Jesus is full of consummate wisdom. It establishes the limits, it regulates the rights, and distinguishes the jurisdiction of the two empires of heaven and earth. Uh, Guzik once again said, In the answer of Jesus, God was glorified, Caesar was satisfied, the people were edified, and his critics were stupefied. <laughs> now, there's nothing wrong with using whatever rights we have as citizens of a nation, either to protect ourselves or to advance the cause of our heavenly citizenship. Paul did not hesitate at times to invoke his Roman citizenship in situations where it could be useful. You recall uh, in Philippi, where he and Silas were uh, arrested, beaten, and jailed for casting a demon out of a young woman. And so they're in the, says they put him in the stocks. So Paul was very much into stocks and bonds. And so. He spent a lot of time, you know, involved in those things. Um, so, you know, it comes around to where they decide they're not going to push this issue any further, the authorities there. And they say to the jailer, oh, let those guys go. Tell them to leave, you know. And so uh, the magistrate sent to the officers, this is Act 16, 35, the magistrate sent to the officer saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. This was letting them off pretty easy, actually. But this was Paul, what Paul required. Let them come and, and let us go themselves. Because they could be uh, suffering the penalty that they had imposed upon these men because they were Roman citizens. That was the law. And the officers told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So Paul used his Roman citizenship when it was a situation where it was needed. Also in Acts chapter 22, when Paul was arrested in the temple in Jerusalem and they were about to rip him, you know, tear him limb from limb, the Roman commander came down to where he was and, you know, delivered him from that. But in Acts 22:24 it says the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as, he, as they bound him with thongs, 
Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. Because if you weren't born a Roman, you could buy citizenship, but it did require a large sum. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Being born in a province of Rome, you made you a Roman citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. Because Paul had certain rights here that he withheld in both these situations. Uh, But he used his Roman citizenship and we should not hesitate to use our citizenship, uh, U.S. citizenship, if you're a citizen of another nation, whatever it might be. Uh, we we can also use our constitutional and lawful rights as the Lord leads. <clears throat> We're also compared to ambassadors in relation to this world's kingdoms. In Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, I start reading in verse fourteen. It's a, where Paul says, "The love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died." And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's rendering to God. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This was the gospel that was preached. He says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is someone from another country or another kingdom who is coming to represent that country. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the message of the ambassadorship. For we, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Also in Ephesians chapter 6, at the end of Paul's uh, writing about the armor of God, putting on the whole armor. In verse 18, he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the ministry of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul was writing this, letter from prison, called himself the prisoner of the Lord. And he says, I'm an ambassador. I'm still an ambassador, but right now I'm in chains, you know, in representing the Lord. So we represent the kingdom of our God to the kingdom of the earth, and we offer citizenship in heaven to any who are citizens anywhere on earth. It's offered freely and without cost. The one condition is that you now fulfill the obligation of your new citizenship. Jesus is your Lord and your God with all that that entails. Now, it's much more important to be a good citizen of heaven than to be a good citizen of earth. 
It is important, however, to be a good citizen of earth, and we're responsible before God to do so. If uh, we read what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, he says this in verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves from the authority. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Authorization for capital punishment of government. Now, the government authorities are responsible to God. They have to answer to God. But he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. This is government as it should be, of course. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. wonder where he got that idea. Uh, In John 19, we get some uh, thoughts on authority from Jesus uh, when he's before Pilate. You know, the Jews tell Pilate that he claims to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate, or really when he says, he makes him, he said he's the son of God. That's when they really got freaked, when Pilate really got freaked out. So he goes back in, verse 9, John 19, he goes into the praetorium and says to Jesus, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus says, you could have no power at all against me unless it has been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. We see governments that are horrendous governments at this time. God has allowed those governments to ascend and to have authority. Again, they will answer to God for the authority that they exert. And, you know, of course, many of those governments are persecuting believers. That's not punishing those who do evil. They think it's punishing those who do evil. <laughs> but it is not. Uh, John 3.27, when they came and they were they were talking to John the Baptist, uh, and his disciples were saying, you know, Jesus is over there. He's, he's, they're baptizing a lot more people over there than you're baptizing here. And John answers in verse 27 of John 3 and says, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. That's the only place where any kind of authority comes from, but then there is that rendering back to God if you're in a place of authority. In Titus chapter 3, Paul writes this, remind them, the believers, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. So he gives them this command to obey. There we go. Speak evil of no one. Now, that's that's a challenge. I mean, you can speak truth. You can speak facts. 
But you have to do it in such a way that it's not speaking evil of someone. Peaceable, gentle, showing humility. He says, this is the reason. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. So, it's kind of like these rulers and authorities are foolish, disobedient, deceived. You know, this was the Roman government. Serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Lord, our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the place that we have. So we don't have to fear the authorities, but we do have a responsibility to them being under their authority. First Peter chapter 2, Peter also spoke to this issue. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. We should always be about good works. If we're um, being challenged by an authority, then we should be good, showing forth goodness and good works. It says in verse 13, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So we got the king and governors. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. And then... He says this, which puts another light on it. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So we may have harsh authorities over us or to show forth the Spirit of the Lord and His goodness. And then he says, for this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Now these these guys knew something about this. It was they were not they're not speaking theoretically. They they were dealing with authorities that were opposed to them, you know, often. And and you can read on in Peter here. He he has you know some more to say that that uh, follows that. So if we take the if we take advantage of the benefits of government rule, we are obliged to submit to government as long as it does not infringe on our service to God. That's the rub. Simply said, Jesus told us to pay our taxes. The rub comes in when the authority commands that I do something that contradicts God's commands to me, or when the authority commands that I not do something that God commands that I do. And then I must obey God rather than man. However great an earthly authority is, the authority of God is infinitely greater. The command is to render unto God the things that are God's. And when I become a believer, everything I have belongs to God. When I'm an unbeliever, everything I have belongs to God. But I don't, I don't recognize that. 
You know, and speaking of Jesus bringing about this revolution, he's, he, he wants to overthrow the Caesar that's in our hearts. You know, he wants to be on the throne, get rid of that authority, that Caesar that's living there. Anything t- Caesar takes, I'm not accountable for. You know, they take my money, I'm not accountable for what they do with it. That's on their shoulders. He's responsible for how he spends my tax dollars. Whatever remains, I'm accountable to render it to God for his purpose. And whatever he tells me to do with it, that's what I am to do. But I'm responsible for that portion. And not, you know, we're, we're talking taxes, so money. Not just money, but everything in our lives. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, in verse 15, uh, the Peter and John had healed a lame man. And uh, they were called before the council, before the authorities. And they had told them, don't talk about this anymore. And they had to discuss among themselves, how are we going to get these guys to stop this? You know, because here the, you know, the Jesus thing's coming up again. We thought he was gone. He's not gone. In verse 15, it says, When uh, they had commanded Peter and John to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? We know what we'd like to do, but we can't do that. For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But, so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in his name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have said and heard. That song that we sing that Steve wrote. We've got to obey God. We've got to listen to God more than listen to you. And at one point they, they said, you filled Jerusalem with this teaching and you're seeking to bring this guy's blood on us. You know? Well, also in Acts chapter 4 later on, when they go back to the other disciples, they begin a prayer meeting. In Acts 29, or 429, it says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So their prayer was answered and, and they were going to keep speaking, right? They were told by the government authority, well, it wasn't the Roman authorities, but the Jewish authorities, you know, I told them, shut up. Talk about this no more. Uh, in Acts chapter 5, they had become more bold toward the apostles. They actually arrested them and threw them in prison. They were going to bring them out the next day for trial. And an angel opened the doors to the cell in the middle of the night, well, toward morning probably, because he told them, go stand in the temple and, and share the good news. You know, And so they're out there sharing the good news, and they send the officers to the jail to get them, and they're like, come back, and they're not there. 
everything's in order, the cells are locked, and there's nobody in it, you know. And so they go and get them, and it says, uh, verse 25 of Acts 5, he says, One came and told him, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And the captain went with the officers and brought them and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you to teach, not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. These guys face this often. The apostles never stop sharing the truth of the gospel of the grace of God, even when commanded to do so. They suffered much persecution as a result. We find numerous examples in Scripture of people who could not obey specific governmental demands. We find Daniel and his friends being faithful and obedient servants in pagan Babylon. But when certain things were required of them, they could not comply. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you know, when the idol was set up and they, everybody was to bow down, they said, yeah, we're not going to bow down. You know, they're just standing there and, and apparently there were so many people there that somebody had to go tell Nebuchadnezzar, there's these guys over here that aren't bound down. You probably couldn't even tell from, from where he was. And of course, they he says, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace and their statement was something along the lines, we don't even have to be careful about how we answer you. Because our God will deliver us from your hand, O King. But, you know, if he doesn't deliver us from the fire, then we're still not going to bow down. <laughs> so forget about it. And, of course, you know the, the outcome of that story in Daniel 6. You know, people were trying to get Daniel, and so they had the authority write a decree that cannot be changed, that anybody who prays to anyone other than you, king, for the next 30 days, he needs to go into lion's den. And Daniel goes home, he opens his, you know, could you compromise and keep your windows closed today? Keep your shutters closed? He opens his window three times a day, prays as always, and of course he's accused and thrown into the den of lions, and the Lord delivers him. The Lord didn't deliver everybody that was faithful to him. You know, he did deliver them, but not all in the same way. <laughs> Exodus chapter 2, we find a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph comes to power, and he commands the midwives to drown all the male babies in the Nile. And the midwives, they don't say anything, but they, you know, we can't obey that command. And so they begin preserving the babies, and that's how we get Moses, of course. And they were commended for this disobedience to the authorities because God's authority is greater. And Joshua 2, we find Rahab in the city of Jericho hiding the spies and lying to the, the uh, soldiers that come through looking for them. Once again, she's praised for this, and, and uh, her life is preserved and of her family. It's preserved. So there are those difficult decisions we have to make sometimes, and and they may result in bad things for us, you know, in this world. Um, but we need to make that, draw that line, and say, no, I'm not going to 
cross this line that you're demanding. In modern times, we find many others, Corey, uh, Tin Boom, when the soldiers came to their house looking for all the, you know, they were going around collecting all the radios so they couldn't get news from the outside world. And they gave them radios, but they kept the one radio. Is this all the radios you have? Uh huh. <laughs> that one's got a CD player in it, so they didn't ask if it was a radio with a CD player, you know, whatever. But um, they, you know, they bought forged ration cards to help preserve the lives of Jewish people who were going to be sent to the concentration camps if they uh, were caught. And so this is you know, the greater good and the greater authority. Uh, we, we find Bible smugglers through modern times taking Bibles into you know communist nations and other closed nations. Um, got any Bibles in that Volkswagen? Brother Andrew? No, no Bibles. No. <laughs> they would uh, they would tear that Volkswagen apart, you know, and they couldn't find anything. So. And you know, Corey prayed. You made Lord, you made blind eyes to see, make seeing eyes blind. When she was trying to get that Bible into Robinsbrook, and uh, of course that is what happened. So. We see people continuing to preach in opposition to the ruling authorities in closed countries throughout the world. Many are in prison as a result. Some are tortured for information or to break their will. Some are killed, while the earthly authority either stands by and watches or actively supports the killings. In our own nation, for the first time, we're dealing with restrictions being placed upon churches while favoritism is shown toward rioters and demonstrators political elites, and certain constituencies. We have to navigate these waters and determine what must be rendered to Caesar and what to God in each situation. And certainly there are people who are coming to different conclusions in some cases about these things. Um, we're not the judge. We just, you know, if, if brothers and sisters come to a different viewpoint, we discuss it and we still have that dearest. We love them. We support them. Hopefully they support us. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 35, Paul writes concerning the things that could happen to us. In verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, for I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So in all these things, we're more than conquerors. The victory is assured. And so whatever may come our way, if we render to God those things that are His, whatever the earthly authorities might do, um, we, we are more than conquerors in all those things. Do you have responsibilities in this world as a citizen of heaven? 
carry them out faithfully. But carry out your responsibilities as a citizen of heaven. That person was supposed to be earth. Do you have responsibilities in this world as a citizen of earth? Carry them out faithfully. But carry out your responsibilities as a citizen of heaven with fervency. Render to God the things that belong to Him. Obedience, worship, honor, the self-life, all that we are and all that we have. The correct path is not always obvious when authorities conflict. Many situations are unique, but God is faithful to provide His guidance. The circumstances can become quite complex, so we must not judge one another in regard to decisions that are not clearly stated by God in Scripture. We are to support one another, pray for one another, and love one another. That's our command toward fellow believers. So Jesus makes this statement, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, to God the things that are God's. And they marvel. Nobody ever spoke like this man. Jesus just leaves this statement hanging there for them to deal with. He doesn't expound upon it like I've done for a long time. He just says it. And then it's on to the next thing. You know, the Sadducees are about to come and ask him their questions. He just leaves it hanging there for them to deal with, and it still remains hanging there for us to deal with, or for it to deal with us. The perfect answer did not mollify his enemies. They later twisted his words in accusation before Pilate, over in Luke chapter 23, uh, in verse 1, the whole multitude of them who were clamoring for Jesus to be killed arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. They just lied about what he said because he actually said, Caesar's going, give it to Caesar. 